Hello, I'm going to be reading the Bible. So the first passage is from the book of Ephesians, and you can find that on page 7 of your zine. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And now from John 20, I think one of the greatest passages in the Bible. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who it is, you, is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord! And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we read in this passage of Jesus calling Mary by name so that she believed in him and found life, we pray too that we, as we sit under your word, might hear you calling us and respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, we met together and discussed uh, and looked at John 19 and John 19 ended like a catastrophe. Uh, last week we saw in, in John's Gospel, which we've been looking at over the past few weeks, uh, this mounting picture of who Jesus is and then last week he, he enters the city and he is celebrated as, as one who could bring an effect Real change, real hopes had been placed on him. And yet at the end of John 19, we're left in this dark place. It seems as if all hope is lost. There is a burial for Jesus and his body is laid in a tomb. It's a catastrophe, that is, a disaster which to the disciples seems to suddenly ruin everything. I don't know how you viewed 2020 for yourself, but to many, catastrophe is a word which describes it, the event that suddenly ruins everything, change plans, dash hope, and the realities that COVID brought, real suffering and grief to, and continues to do so to, to many, many people. We've been spared the full weight of its blow, but across the world, as uh, you are aware, it still continues to, to wreak suffering and pain in its path. And it's interesting, isn't it, because in light of catastrophes, we often seek to turn to fantasy. We want some alternate reality and ultimate good outcome to help us cope with what is. 
think many of us are very thankful for our Netflix uh, subscription this past year. And catastrophes, you know, they appear in literature and films all the time. But there's also another literary feature that features in films. It's what Tolkien called the catastrophe. that is a good catastrophe, where right at the end, the story which seems to only be heading towards prevailing in evil, suddenly and unexpectedly, there's a turn. It's a, a joyous turn and a sudden and miraculous intervention. And if you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings stories or the films, you will know that that is how it ends. I'm reading it to my boys at the moment, so I'm not going to give the ending away. But it's a twist where, when all seems lost, the best possible outcome emerges. And so if John 19 reads as almost a catastrophe, if it ended at that point, on Friday, Jesus is crucified, he's laid in the tomb, and it seems to his followers that it's the undoing of everything. There's no resolution whatsoever. It's just death and sorrow. Well, these verses in chapter 20 paint a different picture. See, on Sunday we have resurrection. It's a new catastrophe, a new everything, where death turns to life, sorrow turns to joy. It gives us hope of a new reality, the death will not be the final word. And so the resurrection is not just good news, but it is a hope of a new reality because I don't know what your experience of this past year has been, but as you've looked around and you've seen the brokenness of the world, there's a heaviness to it, isn't it? We, we long for something to be made right, to be remade. And if you've experienced lost yourself or if you've struggled in the last year or indeed throughout your life, you long for yourself in one sense to be remade or some easing or some different reality that could be held out to us. And so the resurrection is that promise. And the question for us is, well, is it true? Because it's, it's a nice idea and it would be wonderful if this was a reality, but is it true? And the Apostle Paul recognises this. In 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to a young church in the city of Corinth, he says these words, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, this is his verdict, if it's just a hope, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the resurrection isn't true... We are fools, he says. If Christ has not been raised, the story is indeed a catastrophe. And so as we encounter this passage today, initially I just want to draw out some themes uh, from the account itself which can give us confidence that the resurrection is reasonable. But what I'll go on to say is that reason is not enough. And we'll go on to see that emerge. See, many dismiss the Christian faith because of its key claims, the resurrection, and it's understandable. 
They assumed that perhaps these early believers were, were desperate, they were gullible, or at worst, they were deceptive in their accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And in the account today, we see some of those things addressed. I'm just going to walk through a few of them. So a question for us is, firstly, did the resurrection faith, did the Christian faith arise because these first Christians were desperate? Christianity has often been described as a crutch. Faith is for the weak. And there is an argument that early believers, and indeed believers today, are needy and so needed a form of narrative, a story to make sense of themselves and our world. And so this story is the one that they came up with. They needed Jesus' resurrection to be, to be true so as to cope with life. It's a kind of almost wish fulfilment. But it's interesting in this early account, what we see here is that there is desperation here, but it's desperation prompted by grief and not by an idea in order to form around the resurrection. In verse 1, we read, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. We've seen that Jesus was buried, and she goes to the tomb, and her assumption is that Jesus is dead. Because in verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. It's interesting that the disciples, even though they'd heard Jesus speak about his resurrection, did not expect this. This was an unexpected thing. Two things to notice as well in, in this, this first point is that Mary has real courage here. Someone pointed this out to me yesterday. Mary went to the tomb when it was dark. In the other gospel accounts, the men are in fear, locked away, but Mary goes out into the dark before dawn to go to the tomb. Tragically and terribly, then as now, there are dangers for women walking in the dark. She is courageous. She goes to the tomb. But she goes to the tomb and we see that she did not expect to find the risen Lord Jesus. She is not desperate. She's desperately broken. They have taken our Lord. They've taken the body away. It doesn't seem to occur to her that Jesus has risen. And so in this first count, does the resurrection of faith arise because Christians were desperate? Well, it seems not from here. But secondly, did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were, were gullible or, if you flip that, deceptive? See, many people say that faith is believing something despite reason that they were gullible. But here we, we do see the beginnings of a different picture. In verses 3 to 10, there's, there's great length that's gone to to explain the processes by which Peter and the other disciple came in and the things that they observed. 
He saw strips of linen lying there, as well as cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. They applied their reason to try and make sense of the situation. They didn't expect Jesus to be risen, but then too, they assess it. This isn't blind faith of someone who is gullible. Rather, already knowing that this is not what the disciples expected, we see Peter adopts reason to try and make sense of what is happening. Or if we flip that, could, could the resurrection account be because the first Christians wanted to be deceptive? Again, everything we read in this account is that that's not the case. One of the most striking features of this story is it's um, the, the character of women playing particularly in, in this, this story as the primary witness to the resurrected Jesus, we'll see. We rightly don't make much of this feature as we, we read the story, but at that time, women's testimony was only worth half of that of a man's in Jewish court. Tragically, then as now, it seems that women are not considered or believed in the things that they say. But the remarkable thing about this account is that the first witness to the resurrection was a woman. Then this was scandalous. Remember the courage of Mary first at the tomb and then she features as its first witness. Any credible account of the resurrection would never put it together this way. Anyone merely inventing the story would have done it differently. But what's striking as historians have looked at this is that the seeming inconsistencies here actually make the resurrection account more reasonable than less. Did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were gullible or deceptive? Well, it seems not. The first Christians would not have invented a story with a woman as the first eyewitness. So as you can see, even in this small section of the scriptures, we can see that the resurrection faith is reasonable. I'm not saying that this is the watertight case for it by any means, but John goes at pains to put these things in the text to demonstrate that it is reasonable. The first disciples were not merely desperate, gullible or deceptive. And if you want to read more about the historicity of the Gospels, there's plenty of books that you can take for free up on the back there by people much smarter than me writing about this. However, I don't know how you feel as you hear that. It might be compelling. I imagine there's many more questions in your head, absolutely. But what's striking is that reason alone doesn't lead to faith, and we see that in this story. It requires an encounter with Jesus. See, the resurrection account is reasonable, but evidence won't lead to belief or change. I don't know about you, but there, there's so many health warnings on, on everything. Most of us know that to live long and healthy life requires certain things and restraint from other things. We can mentally assent to these things, but if you're anything like me, my 
behaviour is, is dictated more by my taste buds and appetite rather than my mind. I can give intellectual assent to all kinds of things, but yet the impact on me is minimal. I put it aside because at the end of the day, I want something else. So what does affect change? If evidence won't lead you to faith, what can change what we believe, or or even larger, what we want? Well, it's revelation, isn't it? So go back to that example that I just mentioned. What will change the way in which we behave? Well, it might be a scare of some kind. It might be a revelation, a a diagnosis that is revealed to us. Or it, it might be an encounter that we have. You're becoming a parent for the first time and suddenly you're contemplating things that you've never had to contemplate before. Even though you might mentally assent to these things, suddenly this new revelation, this new encounter shifts and changes you. And that's what we see in this second half of the account with Mary. Mary encounters the risen Jesus And Jesus reveals to her that he is indeed the risen saviour. If you look at verse 11, it says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise it was Jesus He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. What's striking as you first read this is the tenderness at which Jesus addresses Mary. Mary has been with Jesus for many years. And here he deals with her with with gentle questions. I don't know if you've received or given counsel, but often it's it's not simply enough, is it, to to tell people how to live or how to think. Rather, questions are are gently asked to help the person recognise events, patterns or realities or thought processes to which those questions bring enlightenment, realisation, and and hopefully change. And you see that is the way Jesus deals with Mary here. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? But then beautifully, he just calls her by name, Mary. And that's the moment that enlightenment and realisation and change happen. It's a beautiful picture of what John earlier in the Gospel says the Good Shepherd came to do. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And the most amazing thing about this is that we see that it's Jesus who takes the initiative. Mary is frantically running around looking for the wrong Jesus, as it were, the dead Jesus, and she won't find him because the risen Jesus meets and finds her. There's great comfort for us here. It may be that you are looking for Jesus and feel like you can't find him. 
Or it may be that you are trying to run from Jesus, but the risen Jesus finds you. The risen Lord won't let you go. He's taking the initiative with you, even now as we hear his voice through his word. The risen Jesus meets and finds Mary. In verse 16, she responds, she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The resurrection means so many things. Connected to to Good Friday, it's a confirmation of the finished work of Christ for us. When Jesus says it is finished on the cross, we have been spared the consequence of our lives where we ignore God through our sin. It's a picture of our reconciliation with him and it's a promise of, of a new world to be remade. But here the resurrection is much more personal for Mary. And so it is with us. He's present with us by his spirit. And although we do not see him face to face now, one day we will. He'll be as real to us as he was to Mary that morning. And he takes the initiative. He calls us by name. Well, what are the implications of this for us? The risen Jesus comes to us today through his word by the Spirit. And in these words, the initiative he takes with Mary, he takes with us. He reveals himself to us. He brings understanding. He brings enlightenment and a new reality that is secured through his resurrection on the cross for us. And he calls us to hear his voice and to trust him. At the end of this passage, it says that these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. Jesus rose from the dead that we might die to sin and be raised to new life with him. It's a promise of a new reality. And so Jesus, now ascended to heaven, sends his spirit to reveal him to us. And the spirit works through scripture to hear his voice. And so the call for us today is to listen to him. To believe that Christ came and assumed flesh. That Christ died for our sin. That Christ rose to life so that we could have life with him. Tolkien was a Christian. He recognised that the idea of the catastrophe came from, from the gospel. He thought of the gospels as the greatest fairy story. In his essay on fairy stories, he writes this, the resurrection is a eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The gospel is the supreme story, and it is true. Life without the resurrection is ultimately catastrophe. It's not to say that there's nothing good in this life. There's many things which are good in this life. But death being the end is the ultimate undoing of all that is good. But Easter is eucatastrophe. 
the emerging of a new hope, a new life with him, if we hear his voice and respond to his call.